Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello and welcome to the Autosport Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Kalanoukas. Welcome to a special edition of the podcast, which is dedicated to one of the highlights of Autosport's year. And that is the top 50 drivers of the year list that we have once again produced and is available to read in our current bumper double issue of Autosport magazine and for subscribers to autosport.com+. Every year, this list is a source of hot debate and controversy, both inside and outside Autosport itself, so we thought we'd have a little chat about the 2020 list to explain how it came to be, why certain drivers have been ranked where they are, and why you don't need to be incredibly angry about it. Joining me tonight are three special guests who are ultimately responsible for the list, he says, washing his hands of any responsibility as merely your humble podcast host. Uh, and first up is the person charged with coordinating the 2020 Top 50. And may I say, you did a very fine job getting everything together despite some of your contributors filing inexcusably late and having, frankly, the nerve to want to reward Sergio Perez's late season success. It is, of course, Autosport Magazine's editorial assistant, Matt Q. First of all, how are you, Matt? And uh, can I just, before you answer, just remind you that the last time we did a Top 50 podcast on the on the Autosport podcast uh, was was two years ago. And I learned from listening back to that in my, you know, detailed preparations as i'm sure you can tell for this uh, for this uh, episode that was your that was your first time appearing on the podcast so happy anniversary i guess thanks very much two years later same job title same uh, coordinating the same features it's uh, it's been up for a trajectory i was also reminded alex that uh, as we record this is santiago uh, e prix has just been cancelled and of course uh, we went on holiday together lovely romantic frisson after the race uh, yeah, so, uh, very pleasant very hot i remember it was it was enormously hot, especially sharing that bed. I'm reminded now it's all cancelled. Just how how much of a dreadful year this has been. How much it's uh, probably going to get worse next year. So uh, I'm glad to take some time away from the news and whatnot to uh, talk about 
what's made people angry on Twitter, and that's the top 50 drivers. It's always pleasant, that. Always pleasant. Well, anyway, glad to hear that uh, I was the peak of your year, by the sounds of it. That was quite fun. Good, uh, good oh, holiday. Enjoyed enjoy that I cable did. car we were in at one point. I did then move in with my girlfriends, uh, so I should probably mention that, but she won't be listening. Will she be listening? No, well. Of course not. Next up is a new guest on the Autosport podcast. It's Autosport.com's editor, Hayden Cobb. How are you, Hayden? And how have you found being involved in this special project for the first time? Oh, I'm very well, thanks. Um, it's been a, an eye-opening uh, experience getting to getting to know you all and getting involved in this. Um, obviously, there's been plenty of debate that we'll no doubt go into in a bit, but um, no, it's been, it's been good fun to, to see everyone's opinions laid out and then overriding them completely and, and deciding on a list. I, li- I like how you said uh, it's been eye-opening and the first thing you said after that was getting to know you all, which is interesting, <laughs> seeing you joining us in the team back, well, in, the, back in the spring. Yeah, uh, speaking of sort of Matt saying it was a horrible year, it is amazing to think that uh, having been part of the team for for close to nine months now, uh, technically I have not been in the office as an employee, nor seen you all in the flesh as co-workers uh, and colleagues. But uh, that is the world we currently live in. Didn't we met at Barcelona Airport with Luke Smith and Stuart Codling? But we didn't really, like. There was no. It was. It was just. A, we were just having sort of lunch for getting on a plane rather than anything to do with joining Autosport. That's right. That was uh, mere coincidence, but a bit of a covert operation. So uh, yeah. Well, let's come to the man ultimately. I guess who who hired you? Who hired me? The high Q probably. Um, it's Autosport's chief editor Kevin Turner. And after that disastrous list of uh, decisions you've made there, um, I also I've also got in my notes here. That you are the person who everyone should be sending their angry emails, letters, and tweets at regarding the top fifty. So, I mean, you look horrified already on this Zoom call. How how are you, Kev? Well, f- first, I need to apologise to all the listeners and readers because I think you're right. I think I was involved in employing each one of the three of you, which was obviously disastrous. Who did the best interview? Oh, I'm not getting into that, Alex. Because it was me, and we all know it was. <laughs> I'd argue, I'd argue, I pretty much hired myself with my glittering track record. <laughs> Moving swiftly on, of course. I don't know why I have to be responsible for the top 50. I mean, you can tweet me because I, I won't see it. That's fine. <laughs> um, if you've got something more constructive, yes, an email would be fine. I've had some very sensible and constructive emails recently about various things. So that's that's been quite good. That doesn't sound normal. Yeah, no, this year has been, um, yeah, there's been some some very, con- even, even people that have been disagreeing have been sending in some very sort of constructive and well-argued points that um, I've had some quite, quite nice correspondence with people when I've had the chance to to um, to reply so yeah thank, thanks in advance for those but um yeah well the top 50 is always a always a bit of a challenge the first thing I normally try and cover off with this is to say that it is the top 50 drivers of the year not the top 50 drivers on the planet because for example we all know any motorsport fan would put Fernando Alonso somewhere in their list of the top 50 drivers in the world right now but you can't really say he was one of the top 50 drivers of 2020 because he only did a couple of events and he didn't, it's not like he won them. I'm sure he'll return to the list next year, but he's not on this list. Well, if he keeps up that fine form from his young driver test, I hope he, I hope he gets his big break in Formula One next season in 2021. <laughs> um, but Matt, can you, can you please explain to us right at the start how we came from nothing to a final top 50? How, did, how was the process this year? And was it any, was it any different because of the, uh, the nature of 2020 with the pandemic? Yeah, to answer both questions in one, it was very different uh, in the sense that usually if we're being generous and when I've been involved in this process in the past, we get to a long list, it's almost the top 100. And then and then it's a case of sort of like X-Factor style judges where you have, you're sort of shuffling around places to make it all fit. That didn't happen this year. Very, very quickly, 
and we talked some uh, executive power from myself. If that's not being too bold. I quickly decided on what a top 60 should be. Um, any juggling sort of, you know, we might come on to this later, but we obviously rank the championships in order of priority. So when we're getting down to correspondence nominating sort of World Rally Championship three drivers, they get in a bin straight away. And then we have a sort of a really, a really clear top 60, top 62 immediately. And we and we went from there. We, and sort of it did allow scope for some honourable suggestions, but generally it was it was pretty cutthroat. And I think although um, obviously this year has been a lot more difficult because of what's happened in the world, everything's been so protracted that, you know, we were changing drivers um, quite last minute. And Alex, that's your fault. Yeah, sorry about that. Championship. Uh, but even even then, it's still clear that you know we knew very early on who our number one was going to be, um, and then and then basically you go from there. I thought about it for hours. I don't know I'm about you. Anyway, fine. Sorry, Carry wasted on. effort then, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then and then we go from there. And um, you know, in the past, we've probably been a bit kinder about sending around an order to all our correspondents and getting them to shuffle it around. But that only happened once this year because, again, for a lack of time, and, and to you know, the, the if you order the argument we have is if you want to push your driver up a few rankings, you need to order someone else down. And we have plenty of uh, proposals for pushing certain drivers up, but not many for pushing down, which makes you think you've got it in the right order. So we don't need to really mess around going back and forth um, and then go from there, send them all their word counts and then uh, wait for the deadline to, to come around. And then three days after that, you get the copy and start putting together the top 50. <laughs> I'm pretty sure all my copy was on time until it all had to change. George Russell's sidebar. Admittedly, I hadn't spoken to anyone from Williams at that point, nor had I spoken to George himself, which I actually did after everything had been filed. But that, that, that's why we'll use that for, for various other things, which is good. It was, it was, good, it was a good chat. Actually. I can just say he was on his bed. It was, it was fine. It was he was quite keen he was quite keen to establish that we weren't going to be broadcasting uh, the zoom call obviously i managed you uh, got in touch with him because the last autosport podcast i was in was uh you giving the anecdote of uh, george russell proudly claiming he was changing his number so you couldn't get in touch with him anymore he did i mean it all had to be a, a range of williams this time uh so <laughs> yeah, that's, the, that's that's the the professional nature of our relationship these days not that it not that it ever wasn't professional but there we go hayden any particular decisions on certain rankings that particularly irked you i wouldn't say irked aggressively to the point that we're all going to fall out and never speak to each other again um, Don't worry, that'll happen over something else i'm sure <laughs> Um, but no i actually quite enjoy the yeah the shuffling of the, the back and forth until it gets to the point where you're you're very much splitting hairs of who's going to be P42 over 41 because that, that sort of drags on a little bit. But um, one that sort of did, did surprise me when the, when the finalist was nailed down was, was seeing Newgarden in sixth and Dixon in, in eighth for the obvious reason of um, the one that's further down the list won, won the championship. So uh, in my mind, sort of if you win, win the championship and beat your closest rivals, surely by default you should be, should be higher. But there was a a fair argument in place, you could say, um, to, to put you on there. And granted, he is only literally two places above, split by uh, Ricardo as well. So it wasn't exactly uh, a make or break thing, but uh, I, I would have definitely put Dixon above Newgarden in, in this list and potentially knocking on the door of, of the top five, given how his season came about, um, was dominant from the start. Granted, he was sort of defending an ever-dwindling points lead, but, uh, but he held it on and sort of proved he's still the man to beat in, in IndyCar. When it comes to placing the drivers in the same championship, obviously we have to make sure that it tallies with the top 10 drivers from the correspondence of those championships. Unless, of course, they do 
Sebastian Buemi style multiple categories, and then obviously you can move move those drives up and down the list. But if if Scott Dixon is behind Joseph Newgarden in the IndyCar top ten, then he has to be behind it in the top fifty, and that's where you rely on your correspondence. And I think uh, David Malcher Lopez's reasoning behind that was. Um, Newgarden really didn't put a, a foot wrong during the season and he lost out several times through to misfortune under yellow flags, you know, sort of caution periods and that sort of thing. And he ate an enormous gap out of Dixon in the in the sort of second half of the season. Um, you know, Dixon obviously won those three three races on on you know off the bat. Ganassi got their got their stuff, car together because obviously we had the, the the canopy for the first time this year and they were on it. Um, and then Newgarden was chipping away an enormous gap, which he, he did almost do. So um, I, I can see what what Hayden's saying, but it doesn't it doesn't offend me too much. I think it looks good that obviously Dixon has won yet another title, and he's got to be. You know, if you were doing a list of the great IndyCar drivers of the recent era, you'd have to have him up there. But I think this particular season, Newgarden was uh, was every bit as good. And it's where it's also where you sort of. Uh... You hold your hands up, take a step back, and defer to our sort of world-leading correspondents because you trust them to to isolate what makes the best driver of the year, and that's not necessarily the best race team of the year or the best car of the year. You know, so so you, you leave it to them to analyse the great performances, but not where and sort of almost exclude the instance where a bad pit stop or a dodgy car setup for one particular outing has has thwarted them and and therefore pos- possibly cost them the championship. Well, Kev, one thing I can safely assume you are greatly offended by is Sebastian Buemi being 16th, because I know you, you don't really like anything he does. That's very harsh. No, I I, I uh, don't. I think that's entirely fair. He was, I think, with Fernando Alonso no longer at Toyota in WEC, then he became the preeminent uh, driving that team again. I mean, it was pretty close between him and Mike Conway to the point where we put them 16, 17 in the list. Um, but Buemi overall was probably marginally quicker. And of course, also he was fourth in Formula E. I mean, we can Matt, Matt can probably say more about that season. I don't think it was Boehme's greatest Formula E season, but you know, you win Le Mans, you're the quickest guy in WEC, and you're fourth in Formula E as a combination is is pretty strong. So, no, I'm not I'm not offended by that uh, that placing. Kev, coming back to you, I'll give you a proper question rather than a glib one, as that one was. Um, <laughs> can you please explain to me why 2020 Super Formula and Super GT champion Naoki Yamamoto isn't in the top 50? Yes, this is the, to, to hardcore fans, this is the most glaring omission, I think, because we've got at 33rd, we've got Rio Hirakawa in. And that is because of two main reasons. Really, as we were putting the list together, um, Hirakawa was actually looking like he was going to win both Super Formula and Super GT, which is no mean feat. And then um, between that and then the, uh, the list being um, sort of put together finally, he actually ran out of fuel on the last corner of the last lap of the final round in Super GT and lost the championship to Yamamoto. Um, but at that point, we thought, well, he's still leading Super Formula. And that was pretty unfortunate. I mean, that's a, you know, imagine losing a championship by running out of fuel at the last corner. So you know, that's, that's still a pretty strong case that he should be there. And then last weekend, um, which was December the 20th, which is after the top 50 was, was printed in the magazine and went up online. Yamamoto then managed to beat him in the Super Formula finale to snatch that championship as well. So suddenly it looked like, uh, you know, suddenly went from Hirokawa potentially winning both championships to Yamamoto winning both championships. They're both absolutely fantastic drivers. Super GT and Super Formula are very, very hard to win, highly competitive. So we always like to try and make sure we've got the top performers in there. 
Um, and yeah, it's just a, a legacy of the 2020 strange scheduling that the Super Formula finale was after the top 50 list, which it had to be. And so apologies to Yamamoto and his fans, because quite obviously, while winning those two championships, I think that's the second time he's done it as well. Um, he is definitely one of the top 50 drivers of 2020. So yes, that's the that's the big caveat I'd put at the bottom of the list this year. So Kev, can you reason with that that if we make room for another driver, it automatically means the driver in fiftieth place falls out of this year's ranking, and he's your adopted motorsport son or <laughs> brother on age? That'd be Nick Tandy. Can you can you uh, can you excuse that? Well, I'm not advocating that as a move. Uh, well, it to reason. I mean, Is where would you put? Where would you put? Where would you put Hirokawa? Because he was 33rd on the basis that he was leading both. Well, do you reckon he drops more than 17 places? I think Tandy's looking perilous. Yeah, well, say, I think he, the... he's on the edge and he's he's dropping off, unfortunately. It's just really good that it's already been printed that he's already in 50th, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> and we should say the reason why that has happened is because of the pandemic delaying all the championships. Like Formula One should have finished two, three weeks before it actually did. And the same with, with Super Formula would normally be well and truly wrapped up by then. Um, but one championship which was uh, extremely wrapped up back in the summer by Antonio Felix da Costa of DS to Cheetah was Formula E. I believe that's the second time in three years that the Formula E champion has been as high as third in the top 50. Uh, Matt Q, as you're the series correspondent, can you explain to us just why and how da Costa was so good to earn that ranking, which, uh, of course, his teammate Jean-Eric Verne did two years ago? So you can't look at uh, da Costa's performances in isolation. You have to consider that yeah, the driver we ranked third three years ago was his double champion teammate. And and Vern sort of held as more than a driver for DS to Cheetah. You know, he was trusted to call Andre Lotter and then De Costa to the team. That is his like uh his nest and and to use the tortured analogy from my season review, Antonio Felix De Costa was a cookie. He came in and yes, he's a good driver, but he's been he's been sort of plying his trade in backmarker, uh, machinery in formery, and then sort of midfield with uh, BMW Andretti. Wasn't expected to come in and sort of uh, upset the outer cart quite as much as he did. The, the case I argued is that he only made one mistake all season, uh, and that was sort of a, a clumsy pass that sort of more British touring car spec than former respect that he pulled on Maximilian Gunther in Chile. Otherwise, I would say he was perfect. When he was slow in Santiago, that was team errors. When he was delayed behind his teammate in Mexico, that was team order errors. And then in Berlin, he was, he was pretty magnificent apart from one retirement, which is a car factory reset. So this is where we consider the Formula E is you know, definitely behind Formula One in the ranking, probably on a par with, you know, the WRC on a good year, potentially, potentially WEC. But De Costa was genuinely pretty much flawless. <laughs> genuinely pretty much flawless. So just, therefore, just, you know, he, pardon? I just, just digging something out of my, uh, my memory, because obviously I, when the, that Formula E championship started, I was the correspondent. Didn't he also clatter into someone in Riyadh, was there not uh, an incident yes. that? I mean, everybody seemed to crash in that event, but but what was that about? He did, but Alex, to be facetious, when did the Riyadh races take place? 2019, therefore they do not factor into this calendar year. And that's, uh, I say it's an important thing. It makes me quite smug because it only really affects my championship and I, I isolated those. And it also helps, I didn't cover them, so I didn't have to have an isolistic view of the championship. Well, you know, I just, I wanted to uh, to, to look back on my Formula Formula E memories. It was 13 months ago, that Riyadh race. But yeah, you're quite right. Of course, it did happen in, in 2019. 19. Although I note that um, obviously we're, we're talking about the, the, the Santiago race being cancelled, it's uh, 
that championship was always going to take place wholly in 2021, despite the fact of being announced as a 2020-2021 championship. Anyway, enough of that ridiculous bafflement. Um, John Eric Vern slides considerably down the list. He already had gone down a bit in 2019, but why is he so far down compared to De Costa? Yeah, so so one of them is very much you know, uh, against his teammate. They had the same car. John Eric Vern's reigning champion only won once and was you know, somewhere on the way to being embarrassed by his teammate. Um, remarkable performance in Berlin when he won quite comfortably and also coming back from uh, a virus. But another thing to talk about to Costa and what helps him and what hurts Vern is that Vern was, uh, when he was third in champions, he was ELMS champion, I think, with uh, with G-Drive. Uh, he's massively scaled back his sports car exploits while De Costa sort of uh, uh, finished... Uh, uh, second in class at the Mon, and so Vern sort of both both things combined really it explains his his slide. There's there's top fifty in many ways is a simple beast. There's not many more reasons to it than that. I think to follow up on that as well, like that's one of the reasons why Vern was so high two years ago because as well as the Formula E championship, he also was mega in LMP two. Um, and whilst you wouldn't say that De Costa has been as mega in his sports car exploits, he has been the most dominant Formula E champion by some margin. Um, and it's always difficult to know where Formula E slots in, but I would agree with Matt that we, we tend to think of it as, in terms of driver level, uh, sort of in the you know top end of WEC and WRC. Um, and he was so obviously the dominant force in that, that it, it, that, that in itself elevated him up to where Vern was when he won it, but also had the LMP2 stuff to, to bolster his argument. I see. I see. Well, Kev, I wanted to uh, I wanted to ask you as you, as you mentioned WRC there. Uh, last year we had Oitanak in third place. He slides down to forty first place this year. Uh, but the WRC champion Sebastian Ogier is ninth. Why is he down in ninth when last year's champion was third? I think there are a couple of reasons for that. One is they just they weren't just enough rounds. You know, they only had seven rounds all year. Three before um, obviously the world went crazy, and then and then four subsequently. And at least one of those was questioned as being, you know, in a suitable state for a WRC event. Um, so I think seven rounds when you're up against people that are doing, you know, 17 Grand Prix or multiple discipline. But also nobody really grabbed that championship by the, the scruff of the neck. It was, you know, Elfin Evans led it going into the, the final round through pretty much by his own admission, kind of being consistent and not taking risks. Um OJ had a had a, a mechanical problem also that that that, that helped Evans, um, and then obviously Evans crashed at the last round. OJ won it as you think he probably should have done, um, you know, with a couple of wins in what was probably the quickest car. A bit debatable between the Toyota and the Hyundai, but yeah, that's the point really. No one absolutely stood out. It wasn't a classic season, and there were only seven rounds. So um, yeah, very odd one to try and to try and pick really try and know where to pitch it. Yeah, and I think by uh, Ogier's own admission, sort of when you listen to him when he won the title, he's hardly a man that suddenly scaled the heights of the world championship. Now, granted, it's obviously not his first time that he's he's done it, but um, as you say, the the weird season that had come together, um, not necessarily winning or being as dominant, um, and generally picking up the pieces because others others were dropping them was was mostly the reason that the season for him came together. So I think. Yeah, putting him granted definitely in the top ten is worth it, but at the low end of that, I, I don't think he would he would argue against that. 
No, no, I think it's worth saying that we're, you know, we historically looked upon WRC very highly, the only non-F1 driver to ever top the top 50, which has been going since 2002 now, um, was Sebastian Loeb in 2005. Um, so WRC drivers do normally feature, you know, very, very strongly. Um, but yeah, this year, I don't think we'll go down as a, as a classic season. And, and just to pick up what Hayden said, you know, OJ said, I'm going to stay for 2021. You know, he was going to retire at the end of this year, but he's sort of thought, well, that wasn't really very proper. I want to have another, another go next year. Um, so yeah, I think, um, I think, yeah, ninth, ninth is, yeah, he's done a great job, but I think that's, I think that's probably fair. As you say, Loeb is the only non-F1 driver to top the top 50 list back in 2005. So what, why has it been so long and what has the driver from another championship got to do to get ahead of the F1 champion or, or the, or the best driver in, in F1 that year? I think it probably has to be a world championship for a start. It has to be the pinnacle of a particular uh, branch of the sport. And I think most racing drivers, if they're honest, either want or used to want to get to F1. That is the, okay, so American motorsport slightly different, but in terms of the rest of the world, that is where people want to go. It is the pinnacle. And, you know, there are lots of fans of different categories and I'm a huge sports car fan. Um, but you, you know, objectively, Formula One is the pinnacle. It has been for seventy years, you know, more or less. Um, so I think, providing you've got somebody who's operating at a high level in Formula One, I mean, there have been times where it's perhaps been debatable. I mean, two thousand eight would have been another opportunity to, to perhaps go outside of F one because, you know, Hamilton, Lewis Hamilton, who won the World Championship, Felipe Massa had moments of that you perhaps wouldn't associate with the number one. But Robert Kubica was amazing, you know. The, the pinnacle of the sport, there is going to be somebody that performs very strongly. So I think it needs to, to topple them. It either needs to be a, a kind of a slightly mediocre F1 year, which we haven't had for quite a while in terms of driver level, I mean, or it needs to be someone absolutely doing something remarkable in something like WRC. Or I suppose if, if you had Fernando Alonso managing to win the Dakar, the Indy 500, Le Mans, various other random but big events, you might, might then put them right up there but yeah I think it, the default setting is always likely to be an F1 driver okay well Matt I managed to massively uh, interrupt and circumnavigate my notes because I actually had another question for you regarding Formula E but uh, we, we had a nice we had a nice segue there in the WRC in the chat about the uh, the general top 50 there and um, we've got Mitch Evans in 20th despite the fact he only and this is sort of a note that came over from Kev's side I wonder if this is something he's particularly uh, intrigued by only finishing seventh in the 2019 uh, 20 Formula E championship so why is he in 20th when he wasn't massively high in the over, in the final ranking that year. Yeah, outside of Formula One, Mitch Evans sort of stands out for being comfortably the lowest ranking driver in his respective championship to do to or even to feature in the Formula E, let alone to come in twentieth position. A couple of reasons for it is that beyond De Costa's sort of dominance, no one was really good enough for second place in in the championship, and that's why it wasn't decided until the sort of uh, until the final race. You know, uh, Stoffel Van Dorn, eventual runner up, yeah, you know, is is good value for that, but didn't have a strong season overall. He crashed out in Mexico in Marrakesh. He was like those F one weekends where he just disappeared, and we didn't know why. So for him to come runner up, sort of rather than take it away from the rest of the field, it says how well De Costa had done, and. It also, you know, not to depress everyone by keeping coming back to it, but obviously the pandemic really transformed the formery uh, or the second half of the formery season. And Evans, and to be to be fair to him, his Jaguar team were, you know, 
definitely second best to uh, Antonio Felix de Costa and Diaz cheated, but a close second best. And this was a case of what I said earlier on in the podcast of where you really have to look at the driver's performance, irrespective of what the team did or how the car was, was faring. And Evans, again, I couldn't off the top of my head now, albeit it's a few months since the season's passed, I couldn't name a mistake. Um, but as, as I wrote a sort of, you know, we will encourage our championship correspondents to go above and beyond the word count they're given and to, to really analyse why their drivers fared how they did. And the bit I wrote about it with Mitch Evans is that he was too good for his own sort of position in the standing. So what I mean by that is that Formula E has a qualifying group system where the top six uh, in the championship go out first to set their qualifying lap. So that means if you're out first on track, particularly these dusty sort of concrete city tracks, you have a track that's got absolutely no rubber on it. It's therefore no, no grip. And that means your time, apart from De Costa, who was sort of the exception, they're generally going to be slower. And so Evans qualified badly every time, but because he was so strong in the races, he kept scoring points. And because he was scoring points, he was still in the top six of the championship and kept qualifying really badly as a result. So because he was good, it meant he did bad, as perverse as that sounds. So I treat his uh, his performances in the car sort of irrespective of where he came in the championship and, and the, the fleeting errors that Jaguar made. And I, for me, he was best value for second place in that championship. And I think it's particularly how it was teed up after after his win in Mexico. I think it's a real shame for Formery that we're denied a title fight and more than that then we then had the champion crowned the earliest it's ever been which is not what fans sponsors championship organizers want it's only what the journalist wants because it means he can write stuff early interest in, insight into your mindset there Mackie. but why don't, why don't i why don't i pick out another one um do you like that formula e rule not overly i mean it has it has a good element which is generally you get you know one one flying lap particularly in super pole but i i know i'm a bit rich uh, it's sort of Speaking from shaky ground, being as I covered a British touring car championship last season and enjoyed that equally, but I I tend to like my motorsport without gimmicks, and I, I would consider Formula E with attack mode, fan boost, and the qualifying quirk perhaps uh, perhaps one too many. Yes, I think uh, you certainly got gimmicks galore in Formula E there. Anyway, right, Kev, um, let's go on to some readmissions in the top fifty this year. The Costa is the highest place one, straight back in and in third place. Uh, any other notable readmissions that you'd like to discuss on this podcast? Well, I think it's quite cool that um, Philippe Alkirk has come back in for the first time in a decade. He was fiftieth in twenty ten, uh, and he's come back. Um, again, thanks to you know, sports car racing, we do see that sometimes. You know, people get on the list in their sort of junior single seater careers, and then if they don't get to F one, they sort of then have to obviously carve, carve themselves a new path and get to the top of WEC or whatever it might be. Uh, and he's a you know he's he's one of those. Um, uh, on a personal level, I think it was rather nice to see Ash Sutton back in. I thought he was incredible in British touring cars. I'd have, I did sort of when we were having the discussion, did try and have a look and see if we could get Ash Sutton and Colin Turkinson in from British Touring Cars because I think they're both fantastic drivers, very different styles. Um, but Sutton was the champion in a you know, in a, a car that had previously done absolutely nothing, so fair play. Uh, and we've, yeah, we've mentioned uh, uh, if you were to do the graph of, uh, of Nick Tandy's in and out of the top 50, um, eighth in 2015 when he was obviously one Le Mans on his one LMP1 chance, 47th in 2014 and obviously he's reappeared this year but I think that's a great indicator really of how when you're in the sort of that next layer down of championships where we know there are plenty of good drivers in IMSA and WEC and um, GT3 racing there's dozens of professional drivers 
it's very difficult to pick anyone out of that. So it has to be a remarkable performance. Obviously, what Nick did at the Spa 24 hours got him onto the list this year. We're not really suggesting that he wasn't any good for the years in between. And that, that's something worth worth keeping in mind because a lot of the GTE, none of the GTE drivers really made it in this year as well, but could well make it in next year or the year after. So, you know, we do try and sort of spread the joy a little bit based on sort of these big uh, blue ribbon races as well. Matt, why did uh, why didn't Colin Turkington make it in? I know you're uh, I know you're great friends, so why did you not pull any strings to get him in? Well, as I say to Colin and any other driver that asks me why they aren't in, they're all in fifty first place. The sports car categories are really the hardest ones to do, where you really do rely on your correspondence because you can't always tell who's doing the the great stints, even if you take the say the top thirty or top fifty lap averages that we sometimes do. You don't know which drivers have been given the old tyres that they've got a week out and therefore their average is going to be less or they've been given a target time. You know, I know at least one driver was pretty annoyed that they stuck to the they stuck to the lap time that they were given by their team and one of their co-drivers didn't. Uh, and so they looked so the co-driver looked quicker because they wouldn't play, they weren't playing the team game. So you've really got to have a high level of insight and be talking to team team managers and 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 team bosses who've got to be honest with you to really find out who's doing a good job in the endurance racing stuff. So probably that more than any other category is hard to judge when you're, you know, from afar, really. Hayden, is there anyone in particular that you thought should have made it in that didn't? Um, well, I've heard there's a case for Nika Hulkenberg, but I don't necessarily uh, agree with that. Uh... We <laughs> shall get on to that, that watertight case that I've got. Um, no, to be honest, I, I, I think it's a fair list. Oh, I found really interesting since uh, the list got published, um, particularly the reaction from, from fans, how, how many different names um, are thrown into the ring that, that, that aren't even, I guess, given, given a first or second thought. Um, and I guess from similar to what Kev had been in saying, um, having a keen eye for, for their work, and especially if they're uh, co-drivers and, and in, in a team, um, sometimes they can definitely be overlooked. So I, I think these sorts of debates could go on endlessly, long into the night. But um, I think with don't, don't worry, they won't. <laughs> I think it's a fair, fair job um, <laughs> with everyone that's in there. Um, but no, no esports drivers. So I don't know if you want to get into that or not. Absolutely not. Um, so Matt, coming coming on to you next. Um, junior single seater stars—they're always quite tricky to place in this list, given the nature of various spec series. You know, how do you rate a driver that might be hitting their hitting their stride a little bit quicker than than another? And um, several drivers in this top fifty are making their very first appearance. We've got Yuki Sonoda at twenty-seven, Callum Eilot thirty-one, uh, Oscar Piastri forty-three, and Teo Porcher. 46. Mick Schumacher is also in as well. Flicking the page of the magazine. Where did he end up? 25th. Um, how difficult was it to place uh, some of the particular young driver stars of 2020 this year? Um, actually, not as hard as it's been in, in previous years. You know, naturally, FIA Formula 2 comes above FIA Formula 3 when it term, comes to ranking the drivers. And it's also been helpful to have sort of a streamlining of series now. I think it's fair to say that even, even in some of the Euro Formula open campaigns, you know, and, and of all those sort of general Formula 3 stuff where drivers have won sort of 10 out of 15 races, now that there is a more established single-seater ladder, you can sort of focus on those. But also with, with the current format as well, it's it's you, you the way you rank it and particularly why Yuki Tsunoda has uh, is, is fared quite a lot better than um, Callum Eilot on this list despite, uh, despite finishing behind him in the championships is because, again, you could argue that 
the race format is a bit contrived. So we're looking more, we're more interested in the, um, in the feature race, which is more conventional with no reverse grids. And that's, that's particularly, I think with Snowder, how we came to decide on his ranking over, over Ilot. But again, Ilot had a great season and Schumacher, you know, compared to some of the, you know, Nick DeVries last year's Formula 2 champion had a better run, but it was a fairly mediocre field, especially when you compare that to the season before when you had George Russell versus Lando Norris. Schumacher, I'd say, was solid, not glittering. We've certainly had junior single-seater champions much higher up this list. But I think I think it was just a happy, happy media ground. Sometimes things sort of fall into place. I think when, you, when you've got... So if you look at some of the drivers around, I know we had conversations about Evan, uh, Elfin Evans in 29th, Van Dorn in 26th, and then over the page, we've got NASCAR drivers. If they're being argued up or down, you consider them about right. Likewise, with the junior single-seated drivers, no one sort of argued them higher or lower, so you figure you've probably got them in the right position. I think the other thing with the, with Tsunoda in particular, but generally is true, is that we try and factor in level of experience so um, one of the reasons that Sinoda is ahead of Islet in our list is because, yeah, he was a rookie. You know, it's a sensational performance for a rookie. Um, but I do have one issue with him, which I only realised today, which is when he starts a Grand Prix next year, that will be the first Formula 1 driver who was born in the 2000s, which is just absolutely unacceptable. Lando Norris is just about okay, November 1999. But Sinoda was May 2000. We should come, of course, to uh, the bit that I was hoping to put off because it is all about Formula One and my rankings uh, for why certain drivers got in the top 50. But first of all, before I let you guys quiz me about the top 10 drivers, although obviously there's a couple more uh, that got in the top 50 as well. Um, Kev, I want to know why did Formula One super sub, general superstar, all round excellent hair having man, Nico Hulkenberg, not make this list despite the fact he clearly deserved a place uh well first of all i would like to say that i am a nico hulkenberg fan and think it's terrible that he doesn't have an f1 drive uh for next year i was hoping that um both him and sergio perez obviously would be on the grid next year perez has obviously got his red bull drive now but uh so yeah so it's not coming from a i don't think hulkenberg's any good point of view but he did two races you know they did them excellently in a very good car, yes, which up to that point, I would suggest that both Perez and Stroll have been underperforming. I so agree. He, so he had two under... Just to, clear, to be clear, Perez did correct that in the second half of the year, definitely. But up to that point, Perez hadn't really been delivering. Stroll, I mean, how good is he? Question mark. Um, and Hulkenberg came in and immediately qualified the car third, was it? That was in the second race, the first one. I can't remember where he qualified, but he obviously didn't start. Yeah, he didn't get to do that one. So that was a non-start. Then he qualifies, obviously qualifies third, which immediately makes you think that car, the pink Mercedes and all that, is mega. Uh, and then he had one other run, didn't he, at the Nürburgring, where he, he was off the pace. But to be fair to him, <laughs> he got the call of uh, uh, half an hour, whatever it was, before I mean, getting in the car. I mean, he, he made the points having not done practice and yeah. got in the car after having a negative yeah. COVID test but, just in time for qualifying. I think in the circumstances, he did, uh, you know, did a great job. Um, but I just don't think that you can be classed as one of the top 50 drivers of the year on, on two outings yeah. uh, in a car that was, well, it, let's say it was the third fastest car in F1 this year, wasn't it? The, the racing point. So... Yeah, big fan. And if you like, he can be 51st. But I just don't think it's fair for him to push out 
drivers that have been doing full campaigns on the basis of two of two outings basically hey i think i think you're right there um so let's uh, let's come to the last bit of the podcast anybody got any burning questions about why the formula one entries are were arranged the way they are obviously i do actually want to want to pick pick you up kev and i think mac you said it earlier um that there was a clear number one in terms of that is lewis hamilton is the autosports top 50 uh, number one driver for 2020 well for a long time this year i had him and max verstappen neck and neck in my driver ratings i honestly didn't know how to separate them i thought it was gonna be very very difficult they're, they're playing different games basically max never had that he was never in the title fight he's still unproven in that title battle i suspect he'll do extremely well when he gets into it when red bull finally give him a good enough car uh, to be in a title fight but they are playing different games. Hamilton's got a lot of different pressures. I thought he coped very well with a lot of um, other stuff that's going on in, in 2020, the Black Lives Matter stuff and, and everything, all the other wonderful uh, things that he did and, and said and promoted this year. But, you know, so they are playing different games, but that, that's sort of why it made it a little extra edge and why it was quite difficult to sort of say, you know, it is quite difficult to separate them. Plus the fact that the Red Bull RB16 simply wasn't as good as the as the W11, which we think may well go down as one of the best F1 cars ever. However, when it got to the Turkish Grand Prix, that is where ultimately the separation happened. Max had not a great race. He was very, very fast and quite probably should have won it. He probably also should have been on pole position ahead of Lance Stroll, but things didn't quite go right when they changed the, when they changed the tires and went to the intermediates. Uh, whereas Hamilton, on a bad weekend from Mercedes, won the race, will go down as one of his best victories, I think, um, certainly of the year, potentially in his career. Um, and that is what, what edged him ahead. And then you sort of, you sort of saw it a little bit to before we got to Abu Dhabi and then Verstappen and Red Bull were well on top, there was just a little bit of, it's just not quite coming together for, for Max Verstappen, I think. Yeah, Leclerc took out Perez at the first corner of the Sakir Grand Prix and Verstappen was on the outside of it. But I do think that, that he probably could have braked a little bit more and not gone straight into the gravel and into the wall. And he, you know, he did, he said, oh, you know, I had no, had no chance, had nothing. But every time I watched it, I was like, oh, you've, you've, just made a mistake there, Max, but there we go. I mean, the, the two McLaren drivers, I, I actually thought, I, I really, really found them hard to separate. And that is why they are so close in both the top 50 and in the F1 top 10 with Sainz 9th and, uh, and, and Norris 10th in that in that particular list. Um, both had a year where they had terrible luck at times. Both had high points, low points, uh, uh, moments where they, you know, it seemed like the momentum was against them, then they fought back and they said flashes. But yeah, overall, really, really very, very good from both of them. I guess you, you could argue that Norris, it's only his second year in F1, whereas science is considerably more experienced. Um, but what actually, what actually edged it again was the Turkish Grand Prix was how good science was because you know it's the classic cliche that the rain is the leveler you know it, it, it lets the the best drivers really really shine and I'm not, I'm not saying Lando Norris isn't one of the best or can't be one of the best or wasn't particularly very good that day but science was one of the best drivers in that Grand Prix he, he, he didn't have a good qualifying but he, he rose up he rose up the grid did fantastically finishing fifth so that is again what what edged them and uh, why I separated the two McLaren drivers as I did this isn't a question from me per se but um on social media people are saying saying that from one outing in the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix, George Russell should be probably second or third on this list. So why have we got him in eighth? For the same reason why Mercedes weren't going, yeah, this is clearly a shootout for our 2022 seat alongside Lewis Hamilton. I mean, it may well have been. And frankly, it was an excellent opportunity for the Black Arrows uh, to see just just how good Bottas and Russell are up against each other in a perfect experiment where nothing was on the line. It didn't matter that they messed up the pit stop so badly because both titles were won, although I'm sure both the team was uh, was pretty devastated because it likes to win absolutely everything. Um, 
yes yeah, you, you can't make a huge call like that why 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 how could he possibly get close to max verstappen on the basis of, of one race in a car that was tremendously better than the williams that he was racing for most of the season in which he also did an excellent job um yeah it was it was a fantastic performance for george russell but i couldn't rank him above valtteri bottas because i thought bottas did a did a did a pretty good job this year. I thought, you know, he's he's up against arguably the greatest F1 driver of all time, and that is another podcast. He pushed him so hard in qualifying, which is one of uh, Hamilton's particular, you know, strengths. And he had some terrible luck. He did have some awful moments, particularly at the start of races, and that is why he ends up in in seventh in the in the, in the F1 top ten, and because I'm looking at the magazine, twelfth in the top fifty. Um, but. Yeah, I couldn't put Russell ahead based on that one race, even though I thought in that race, Russell was comfortably better than him. I mean, I would go the other way and say, because we actually had this debate, um, how, how much do you factor in? Well, we, I think we started talking about this list before the Mercedes call up on all the rest of it. And it's so hard to gauge Russell in that Williams environment because, okay, so this year has at least been able to get into a midfield fight. Uh, which he wasn't able to do in 2019 because the car was just too far off. But again, he's got a teammate that's kind of so-so. You know, Latifi's better than people think he is, but he's not, you know, he's not a multiple world champion in waiting. So we're not surprised really that Russell's blown him off in qualifying every single time. Um, and remember, uh, you know, George had a couple of pretty major calamities. I think the biggest one surely was shunting under the safety car. I mean, that's that's pretty bad. Um, you know, Bottas, Bottas also, remember, was in a bit of a bad patch when Russell jumped into the Mercedes. He'd come off two really bad races. Turkey was absolutely catastrophic. Uh, was it six spins and lapped by Hamilton? I mean, it was awful. But that's not, you know, that, that was Bottas's worst moment. That's not indicative of what he was like all year. So, you know, he just spent however many months being battered over the head by Hamilton constantly. Uh, and then he had everything to lose in that race because, you know, if Russell got close to him, it was like, well, you know, you should be beating him. And if Russell got ahead, which he did, obviously it made Bottas look absolutely awful. So, yeah, I think Bottas was on a bit of a lose-lose there. And it's it's easy to get blinded by that one, you know, fantastic performance from Russell. But, you know, there were there were moments there was Red Bull ring off early on, wasn't there? There was the crash behind the safety car. Not a perfect season. Still hasn't quite nailed starts, has he? Uh, although he did a very good job in the Merc. <laughs> he did. Um, when he when he got in the Merc, which Bottas and Hamilton on occasion has, has shown this year that not the easiest car to get off the line. He absolutely aced it. But I thought what was what was really interesting was it, the, the reason why I think he doesn't didn't end up with points in the Williams. I mean, yeah, the, the Imola crash on the safety car, as you say, Kev, absolutely terrible. But I don't think he would have held that position. There were cars who just stopped behind him. He was out on, on those tyres. And as we saw with uh, Daniel Kvyat, who's also in the top 50, uh, performed very, very strongly this year, despite the fact he's now set to lose his, his F1 drive and, and also just like to highlight that there's a there was a lot of formula one drivers that underperformed this year a lot of them i mean you think like the high the, you know the the, the the sort of the top uh, the top ones that stick out alex albon in the red bull sebastian vettel in the ferrari but a lot of them you know for, for a long while my f1 top 10 was a top nine and then perez came on strong in the second half of the year and it made it a lot easier to make it a top 10 and then obviously uh kev and matt Gear, we had that lovely meeting when i was in abu dhabi where i said we had to change the order of both lists because of how good 
Perez had been, which he took with excellent grace. Uh, but yeah, my, just quickly, my point about Russell was that, yeah, I think the bigger opportunity lost was at Mugello, where he'd been running last. And then the, the final, the third start didn't go his way. He says, you know, it's the, the Williams system is a bit inconsistent. The team does agree with that. But it has been a bit of a feature of his uh, his career historically that he's not been uh, not been good off the line. Although he did nail it when it mattered in the Mercedes. Yeah, I think that the Toto Wolf quote about uh, the Sakia Grand Prix when he said his time will come is true of this list as well. Like We all know that with a fair wind, George is going to be much higher in the World Championship, much higher in our top 50 list in the years to come. So I'm, not, uh, I'm sure he's not going to be too upset about being 15th. And also, for the readers that are upset, the, the, the all sport readers did vote Lando Norris ahead of George Russell in the British Competition Driver of the Year award. But I'm not saying I necessarily disagree with, disagree with that. Um, I think, you know, it's fantastic for... You know, to do a little bit of a plug for British motorsport, I think it's fantastic that we've got we've got George and Lando um, sort of basically waiting for top drives. You know, George has now shown that if he gets a front-running car, he, he will run at the front. And I think, you know, Lando has been close enough to Sainz, um, sort of pipped him in qualifying, and Sainz is now going to have a Ferrari drive. We've got two, two front-running Brits for when, as and when, Lewis Hamilton decides to retire with 125 Grand Prix wins and nine world titles or whatever it will be when he's finished. Oh, it's got to be a nice round 10, surely. Hamill 10. I think I've seen people mention that on Twitter. Anyway. Retire at the end of next year with eight and a hundred and something Grand Prix, and then it's it's Russell and Bottas in Mercedes in 2022. Very interesting to see what happens. Just also very quickly, um, another separation point on Sainz and Norris was the fact that their podiums was getting one each. Was that Norris's came in a really chaotic race that was obviously massively closed up by a safety car, whereas Sainz would have, I think, finished second behind a dominant Lewis Hamilton at Monza because he was fantastic on that day uh, and in qualifying as well, in, you know, qualifying third. Uh, so yeah, so that, that just edged him ahead. Any other questions about the F1 placings? I, I have one, but I'm going to put it to Kevin. Do you, do you not have any questions? Why have you got so many? It's like you, it's like you came armed uh, for trying to put me on the spot. I was trying to make a good podcast. A question about the F1 rankings, but to Kevin Turner, because is it not oh. become something of a recent top 50 tradition that you try and argue Kimi Räikkönen out of this list? But those arguments from you don't seem to have really come around this year. And he sits uh, happily in 39th place, two places down on last year. Yeah, no, I'm very happy to take that, take that question. Um, yes, because my big beef with uh, Kimi Raikkonen, and not just me, to be honest, um, in his Ferrari years, was that he consistently didn't deliver in a front-running car. And, um, you know, Red, Red Bull's done the right thing. Gasly didn't deliver, they put someone in. Albon hasn't delivered, they put someone in. Whereas Raikkonen continued not delivering and being sick out of the top six cars in Formula 1 season after season after season. Okay, yes, there were moments, obviously, he eventually won the US Grand Prix, which even got him to say, you know, finally. Um, so it was frustrating. He was not in a car that where he, you know, he, he was, it was above where he should have been. But I think as a midfield warrior with the experience he's got, um, fantastic when it rains, all that experience to help push the car forward. Great benchmark for young drivers. He's perfect for a midfield team like Alfa Romeo, and I think he's done a he's done a good job there. Um, and I can see why he's 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 going to continue in his F1 career. He's definitely good enough to be in F1. He just wasn't good enough anymore to be in a top car. Comfortably won the Class C drivers battle over Antonio Giovinazzi by ninety seven points, which we are which was brought to us by our lovely guys at Forex and Motorsports Stats. I have one more question. So in our fictional 51st driver spot, is Alex Albon a contender in any way, shape or form? No, I mean, it drops from from 25th and in the top 50 last year to out. 
And it, it doesn't, I don't take any particular pleasure from this because I know Alex Albon, I covered him in Formula 2 in 2017. He's a really lovely bloke. It's great to interview. He's very, very fast, you know, very, very, very good driver. But this was a really disappointing campaign. I know that car was was really, really difficult to drive. Verstappen is is a clear standout talent. He could cope with the overseer. He could cope with the aero imbalance that that car just fundamentally have. And, you know, a lot of the blame should go to Red Bull for the fact that the, that the car was so difficult and, and the lack of pace compared to the Mercedes. But Albon time and time again, the gap to Verstappen was just was just too big. And, and, and he just, it wasn't, it wasn't like he was fourth and a long way off. It was that he was, it, you know, it was rare that he got the Red Bull car into the position where it was. And that just meant he tumbled down the order. Uh, and there's some, there's some great stats to back you up as well. So we've, we've been talking about, oh, you know, Bottas, how terrible was he? If you just look at the raw pace, which obviously is one of the, it's not the only factor, but it's a key factor. The, the, across the season, the gap between Hamilton and Bottas was 0.008%. So that's nothing. The gap between the gap between Verstappen and Albon was 0.8%. It's a, it's a, you know, it's a hundred times of a bigger gap. And you think Vettel had a terrible year, but his gap and and Leclerc was mega, which he was. But even that gap is 0.7. So that's how far off, you know, 0.8% off your teammate. You just don't see that in Formula One these days. Okay. Most people aren't teammates to Max Verstappen. I'd, I'd, I'd take that point that you're not comparing to the same person each time. But, you know, you can't, if you're in a front-running car, um, so say, it's the same as the Raikkonen argument. You can't be that far off. Um, and I think Perez will, what, what has actually happened over the last two years is that we've seen just how good Daniel Ricciardo was and what a blow it was to Red Bull that he left because uh, they've struggled to fill that seat. And I suspect that Perez will slot in somewhere between where Ricciardo was and where um, Albon and, and Gasly have been. Any final questions on my F1 drivers in the top 50? I'd like to make a non-F1 point if I, if I uh, may. I don't know about that. I, that's all I really care about these days. Well, I'm going to override that. Um, so <laughs> I the boss. I, <laughs> but only if, only if we're done with the F1. I don't know if Hayden oh, yeah, might no. have a massive issue with your F1 list. No, no, no. I, I largely agree with it. And I'm glad you over it. You went for the, uh, the, the 11th hour meeting to change the list because I actually agree with how it's turned out. It's a bit of an yeah. awkward moment uh, in Abu Dhabi when I was just like, "Yeah, we need to, we need to change that." I mean, that is the very nature of of deciding these lists potentially before the end of a season is is things can change quite dramatically. Kev, I believe you've got a non F one point to make, which you may make. Yeah. We just haven't discussed NASCAR. Regular listeners, readers will know that I am not NASCAR's biggest fan. However, you can't argue that the top guys aren't operating at an incredibly high level. It's very professional championship. Uh, and obviously they got up and running again sooner than anyone else in, uh, well, I was going to say in motorsport, but almost in sport, I would say. Um, to put together a 36-race calendar this year was just incredible. Um, and um, But it does look a bit strange in our list because we've got Kevin Harvick in 14th, which is obviously very high. We usually have an NASCAR driver high. It's quite often the champion. The reason it isn't this time, because uh, Kevin was actually fifth in the championship, but it's because of this. We are talking about gimmicks earlier. I really, really, really hate the NASCAR system of you can have a brilliant championship and then let's have a knockout thing at the end. Like it's you go from the Premier League to let's have the FA Cup at the end. No, rubbish. So he was the standout. Yeah, he was a standout performer all year and he was undone really by the last couple of races. Um, you know, but he won nine races 
um, and was has put together an incredible string of top fives and top tens, which in NASCAR is hard going. So he definitely deserved his place. Um, and I feel that probably this is one of those occasions where the top 50 driver rankings is a fairer reflection of how well the NASCAR drivers did this year than the actual championship standings that their point system produced. It's a fair shout that you've made there. Um, and to use sort of the, the anti or the opposite uh, of Nico Hulkenberg's example is, yeah, arguably having the full gear as the um, assessment for him and the amount of races that he competed and, and won uh, and yet ending up fifth is um, it's probably not a fair reflection just on the championship, but uh, in the rankings is, is you'd argue a bit more of an inaccurate reflection um, in, in, this, in the same way that where Hulkenberg, yes, he, he stood out for the, for the two races that he did, but again, it's, it's unfortunate it's over a year um, and it isn't the race of the year, it's, it's the whole year that's put together. Now, that's not Hulkenberg's fault necessarily, um, but, but maybe if he, he'd gone racing elsewhere, uh, which I'm sure he had offers to, um, he, he could have been fighting up in this top 50 list. Well, maybe if we did a top 50 moments of the year, then you could have Hulkenberg qualifiers third as a standing or scores points from the back, having Certainly, been yeah. holding the microphone an hour beforehand. You could definitely, you know, you could definitely do that. But yeah, that's, uh, I think that's, that's a very good point, actually. I not even thought that. Yeah, 36 races in 2020 is, uh, it's not, that's not esports related. Is um, it's, uh, it's pretty good going. We should probably we should probably leave things there. I just wanted to say just before we do end, um, do get in contact with us if you want to uh, let us know your views on the top fifty in twenty twenty. Uh, get us on social media using the, uh, the handle at Autosport on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. Um, and definitely write to Kev. Definitely email Kev, kevin.turner at autosport.com. I'm sure he'll, uh, he'll love to receive your correspondence. But whatever you do, don't take it too seriously. Don't send us hatred or just get really angry on Twitter because there's just enough unpleasantness in the world, even without a pandemic. There's no need to, to go off on one on social media. Um, that's just a personal thing that I feel. I'm sure I'm not alone in that. Uh, but there we go. Thank you very much. It is it is late. We've nearly, we, I think we've just put the season review issue to bed, the 31st of December issue of Autosport magazine. I think that's why I saw Kevin Turner celebrating with some beer earlier on. So all that's left to do is to say thank you very much to the three of you for coming along on the podcast tonight and thanks to everybody listening. There'll be a new issue of the magazine for you to pick up every Thursday. And of course, if you want unlimited access to Autosport from the comfort of your home, visit autosport.com slash plus to find out how to subscribe to our digital package. We'll be back soon with another episode of the Autosport Podcast. Music is 6am by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com slash Trilo Music.
Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Sports Social Podcast Network. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.